Welcome to another edition of the Seven Innings Podcast. A lot of ground to cover. Some uh, breaking news from the NCAA. Also an Olympic update for you. And later on in the program, the legend of Langenfeld. We're going to examine the Scarborough strike zone. We're going to hear from Sidney Sherrill of Florida State. And, of course, shag some stats with pitchers who rake. All to come on the Seven Innings Podcast. Beth Mullins, Michelle Smith, Holly Rowe, Jessica Mendoza, Amanda Scarborough, Jen Schro, JDH, Jenny Dalton-Hill, Caleb Bro. We've got J-Mac, our producer, Buzz, and a cast of characters behind the scenes making it all happen for us. And we thank you for joining us on uh, what uh, we are getting close to, the 10-year anniversary of UCLA's 2010 National Championship and a great conversation with Megan Langenfeld coming up. The breaking news, guys, we'll start with you, Holly Rowe, an extra year of eligibility granted by the NCAA, but it will be at the discretion of individual schools as to how they will allot the money that will be available for seniors to come back for another year uh, to play after missing out this spring. So this is very interesting. Uh, I think all of us agree that this was great, that the seniors get their extra year of eligibility back. But coaches will have the discretion of how to spread that money out. So if they have 13 scholarships, do they give people partial scholarships? And some of this will depend on what seniors had going on in their future. Lonnie Alameda of Florida State had told us, you know, she had some kids that had already been um, accepted to law school and to grad school. And so can they put those plans on hold or do they even want to? And um, speaking to Arizona's Jesse Harper, she had already planned to be at Arizona and be in grad school. So she's already planning to come back and how much money she's able to get. Now that will be up to Arizona is how they're able to divvy that up. And these are, there are going to be some hard decisions with this. Um, Patty Gasso, you know, saying, hey, this is going to be difficult for us to spread the money out and spread the, the scholarship stuff out um, because they also want to include that incoming class of freshmen and not shortchange them with what they had been promised. So this is a changing landscape. I think it was the right decision, but I do like that they have left it up to the discretion of the schools so that they can make the financial impact uh, very personal to their programs and what they're able to afford. Well, and I think it's going to be interesting to see what uh, conferences do in order to make it more or less fair or budgetary. Because as you mentioned, Holly Rowe, um, some schools may have larger budgets than others just within their own conferences. So will the SEC come out and say that as a conference, this is what we choose to do, or the Big Ten, um, the Pac-12? I think all those are going to be uh, decisions that will have to be made down the road. But I do love the fact that they're protecting the athletes to have the ability to have a full and complete year um, versus just a, a season that was 36 days long. Um, I do think it brings up an interesting conversation, though, moving forward for the mid-majors. What's going to happen to them? Maybe some of those smaller schools that have very good Division One softball programs but may not have the funding to be able to keep athletes. Will they then enter the transfer portal and potentially end up at a, a larger school that has more funds? So I think, it's, I think this will evolve over the next, not just year, but as you mentioned, Holly, probably two or three years and then and how does it affect rising juniors and seniors in high school um, as they approach their collegiate careers in the next year or two down the road? There are so many questions, you guys, that have yet to be answered. That, and I think that we'll be talking about this six months from now, a year from now. I mean, the repercussions of the decision that was made yesterday is not just something that will 
will um, feel in the next year. Like I think four to five years, maybe even beyond that, because coaches, their strategy, their strategy to recruit differently, communicate with their players differently, the money that they're going to be able to give them and spread it out, how they're going to structure their practices because of larger rosters. Are the mid-major players going to transfer to larger D1 schools? I mean, the transfer portal has got to be rocking and rolling. Where is parity going to go with the mid-major schools versus the power five schools? There are so many questions that um, we're going to continue to talk about as time goes on. Uh, but I think all in all, just morally wise, I feel good for the players, the seniors that do get to have that extra year. If, if I was a player, that's what I would want to. We got 12 softball scholarships, but then you've got every other spring sport on campus as well. And it could be a matter of, okay, what if, say, one school has a lot of seniors in their spring sports and another school doesn't? Um, we're going to get uh, – each school will get less money because they missed out on the NCAA basketball tournament this year. What about football? If we can't play fall sports, are you then going to have to go back and give a year to all of those fall sport athletes, and are you going to be losing a ton of money if we can't play football? So those are other questions, Jen Schroeder, that have yet um, to be decided upon. It is my understanding, though, that the underclassmen, you have they have to have the same – um, deal, if you will, that they were offered. And so you're essentially going to have two freshman classes. The seniors may not get the money they had before. And therefore, um, you know, you could have, you could have to walk back on to play that extra year, Jen. Yeah. And my understanding with the seniors is let's say you're a senior and your coach, um, limits your scholarship money. So you're on a 75% and they now say we only have 50 for you and that senior can't afford it. And she then wants to transfer to another university. If she transfers to another university, she goes against the 12 scholarships for the next university. But if she stays at her current school, then she doesn't go against that 12 scholarship. So I find that to be very interesting. To Amanda's point, the transfer portal, I believe, is going to be crazy. Now, my next question is, those two freshman classes, those two sophomore classes, is it going to be like a red shirt where they say red shirt freshman? Is it going to be fifth year when, when you've got Maya Brady as a senior at the World Series? Is it just going to be a combined senior class? I, Holly, I, I, do you have an opinion on this? Do you know something that I don't know? Oh, I'm just reading right now um, direct from the NCAA's press release and the council voted to um, only do this for seniors who would have exhausted their eligibility during this last shortened season. So that, that does not apply. However, it does say Division One rules limit student-athletes to four seasons of competition in a five-year period. The council's decision allows schools to self-apply waivers to restore one of those seasons of competition for student-athletes who had competed while eligible in the 2020 spring season. And so how I interpret that means – let's say you were a freshman and you competed this year, but your season was either cut short by injury or you played in even fewer games um, than the, than the 25 games that had been played. You could essentially apply for a waiver down the road to have this year of eligibility restored. Um, one other little update from this that I wanted to share is that they are also going to allow schools to use money from the NCAA um let me see the word that they use right now. There is a fund that they use the student assistance fund. And so for example, Mm -hmm. about $18 million was used last year for different things. Like if you needed to fly home for a parent's funeral, um, there's all different things you can apply to use that student assistance fund. 
And so they will allow schools and students to apply. Let's say you were a senior and you are not going to get the same level of scholarship coming up. You could apply to that student assistance fund. However, as Beth mentioned, the money is less at the NCAA right now because they were planning to distribute in June $600 million and they have announced that they will only be able to distribute $225 million in April until the, the insurance policy for the canceled NCAA tournament pays off. So, so the NCAA is not the same monetary body moving forward and that trickle down is going to impact every sport. I think the other thing, too, that um, they will have to figure out here in the coming weeks is what if I'm a freshman and I selected a school specifically because they had a big senior class that was leaving and I knew I was going to start right away or I was going to be the ace? What am I going to do now? Um, am I going to be able to go somewhere else instead to play right away? And the other thing is, keep in mind, too, you got some universities that it costs $60,000 a year to go to. you got other universities that it costs ten grand to go to. So – are those also going to be uh, factors that families and student athletes will have to weigh in as, as to where they will spend that extra season? Um, this will also have an impact, guys, on, you know, the fight for another assistant coach for baseball and softball. Uh, where is that money going to come from now if it has to go to um, scholarships for players or, or money for players? The other big news this week as we move down the um, – Lineup card, which you can get on uh, your social media at Seven Innings Podcast. We are on Twitter. We are on Instagram, so you can follow along each week. There will be virtual meetings now allowed in certain conferences. I'm imagining it will go nationwide and NCAA wide uh, in the coming days. But you can now have a virtual meeting like we are on on social media with your entire coaching staff and your teams, guys. And and that's something just that we're already seeing certain teams dive into. Yeah, and I think it's it's huge just to be able to have that communication. A lot of, I think, teams were already kind of doing it, you know, separate, just being able to communicate, but to honestly be able to see each other and then, you know, be able to work on stuff. Um, and I think that's where it's going to get, you know, kind of how far they can go as far as, you know, even drills or doing anything like that. I think just to be able to see each other's faces right now, talk about what's going on, and then from there and take it and actually be able to do physical stuff, I think it will be the next step. No, you're right, Jess. I think that this is such an uneasy time for all these athletes. There's a lot to discuss. And how cool is it to have the opportunity to talk to your teammates right now, the people that you rely on when you're struggling, when you're going through adversity, you rely on on your teammates and your best friends. So uh, I think if I was in this situation and I was a collegiate athlete still, I think, I mean, right now with talking to you guys is like one of the best parts of my week to hang out. So I can only imagine for those, uh, you know, I can only imagine for those girls that spend literally almost every single minute of their days with that teammate and that family, that this is really valuable for not only, you know, just making it through this hard time, but trying to figure out how to rebuild and move on from this situation. Well, and talking to so many coaches, I mean, they just want to, this is what they do, right? I mean, they want to know like, okay, so you're pitching right now. Like, what do you look like? What, what, what is it physically, you know, like get on a tee. I want to be able to see all of this. Um, and so I just feel like not only to be able to see each other's faces and have that, especially right now, but I was talking to so many coaches yesterday and literally they were waiting to be able to find out how can I coach? And I think now learning how to do that virtually. Uh, Megan Langenfeld, who's coming up later in our show, told me that Oregon starting tomorrow, they're doing leadership 
training and th- th- they have a whole plan in place. So the first time they're able to do a zoom meeting tomorrow with their entire team, they've already put some things into place of this is what we want to do to team build moving forward while we're socially distant. I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're also watching a uh, softball school with the package deal. I'm sure that's part of the part of the rehabilitation program and process uh, in the off season. We're going to hear uh, from Megan who uh, obviously played at UCLA and is now an assistant coach at Oregon coming up shortly, but those virtual meetings will be a big plus for teams here to, to stay in touch with one another and, and feel like a team throughout this without having the ability to practice or play games. The other uh, uh, big story this week is the return of the Olympics after the postponement. It has been announced that they will be playing same time next year in Tokyo. That is the plan right now. So it would be end of July into early August. Uh, we had a special podcast last week. Hope you heard that. If not, here's some sound bites from some of the Olympians we talked to about, uh, you know, just the, the difficulty of putting this Olympic dream on hold for hopefully just one year. Um, it's just difficult to process right now i think um we're kind of in the same boat with a lot of people like our our lives feel like they're on hold um and you know we've planned our entire lives around the olympics being in in tokyo in 2020 it would it would be a lie not to say that there is a little bit of a shock factor a numbness factor i think for everyone if this was 08 and this situation happened, it would be so easy at 21 to be like, yeah, I can easily do this. But I haven't mentally prepared to number one of the conversation with my husband yet. That's like, <laughs> honestly, it's not that I don't think we can find help with the kids. It's like, I don't think people truly understand the grunt work that goes into it for him when I leave. And I don't know if Haley remembers, but as soon as we took the field, I jumped on her back and was like, guess what? You're an Olympian. Um, and just to be part of that with a generation that ultimately thought they weren't going to be able to do it um, was pretty special. You know, I firmly believe that we're all going to band together as a softball community throughout the world to continue to to make ourselves the best that we can possibly be in 2021. And and we'll start with you, uh, Jess and Smitty. And, and uh, Smitty, obviously, you, you guys have both played there a little bit in the summertime. Going to be hot next summer. But just, Jess, the ability to have that dream back on the calendar has got to be uh, special for these players and give them a sort of a due date and something to look forward to. Well, I, I think that um, <laughs> I, I think that the, the biggest asset of making this decision so quickly for these athletes was their ability to say, all right, it's a year. It's not six months. It's not nine months or whatever. It's a year. I think that also helps fans. It helps um, uh, with TV uh, ability for everybody to know when the broadcasts are coming and not having to shuffle around uh, Major League Baseball, the NBA. All those things, I think, were really big decision. Um, and, and to make that decision very quickly, I think, helps everybody. It helps the world just kind of settle in and be like, all right, it's a one-year reset. Um, and, and we know what it looks like because it, we know what it looked like coming into 2020. We're just now going to have the 2020 Olympics in 2021. And by the way, I thought it was also interesting that Tokyo decided with the organizing committee, everything stays Tokyo 2020. It's not going to become Tokyo 2021. Um, <laughs> so you can think about how that would just open a whole can of worms with licensing and printing all new materials and everything like that. So it's still the 2020 Olympics just held in 2021. Well, in July 23rd, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, there's a date. Like, that is so huge. You know, we just talked about the mentality of being able to, like, even just virtual meetings, seeing your teammates. Like, I know as an athlete, like, 
postponement, that word, it sounded like cancellation, right? It's like, it's not happening. It's not happening. Now there's a date. It's July 23rd, yes, of 2021. But for so many athletes, they don't want July 23rd, 2020 at this point because no one's able to train and do the things. But I was watching Kat Osterman on social media. She already put up literally for workout program from now until July 23rd for next year. So you can kind of just put that in place. This is how I'm going to pitch. This is when I'm going to do it. That date speaks huge instead of this vague postponement for sometime next year, maybe. Well, and just to that point, I saw a post on Haley McClenney's social media that said 480 days until I get to play. And, and I thought that was so poignant because you're right. It gives them a goal. It gives them something to shoot for. And it helps you train knowing when you need to really get hard into your training. But also right now, maybe just taking a break, knowing that it's over a year away and getting your body healthy. We saw some surgeries of some of those Olympians that were taking place with the anticipation that they would be ready for this coming summer. But now with an entire year, clean up those little ails, those little injuries, and get yourself 100% for an amazing Olympic Games in 2020. All right, that is what the future hopefully will look like. Uh, the uh, the present, uh, and, and time for just a moment of bummage on the show, we, we, we were supposed to be watching Sabrina Ionescu this week, and we were supposed to be watching the men's and the women's Final Fours this week. And we were also supposed to be in uh, Tuscaloosa and down on the plains for Team USA against Alabama and Auburn this week. And just a moment to pause and and uh, sh- just shed a little tear uh, thinking about what could have been. Um, but again, trying to get through all of this together from the future, the present, and now time to step back in the past. When we return, it's the 10th anniversary of UCLA's 2010 National Championship, The Legend of Langenfeld, and the Emergence of Slammin' Sammy. Hi, my name's Samantha Camuso, formerly known as Slammin' Sammy. Thanks, Beth Mowens. Um, I'm a member of the 2010 UCLA National Championship team. Uh, my favorite memory of that championship series was that eighth inning in game one. Um, the dugout that was my best memory was the feeling in that dugout the contagious positive mojo that was going on a team over self mentality the rally caps the cheers uh, we just we knew we were going to win whatever it took and i will never forget that feeling Welcome back to the Seven Innings Podcast. Still to come on the program, Amanda Scarborough's Strike Zone. We'll hear from FSU Sydney Sherrill. But first, it's time to step back in time. This would have been, it is, the 10-year anniversary of the UCLA National Championship in 2010. Unfortunately, we won't get to watch a championship game this year. Hopefully, we'll be back next year, though, in OKC for another one. And who, if anyone, can match the legend of Langenfeld? Here's Holly Rowe. Joining us now is one of the best legends of all time in the College World Series and great UCLA pitcher, Megan Langenfeld. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm trying to figure out a new normal right now with um, the quarantine and everything going on, but so far so good. Um, Just trying to get a new daily routine going, but we're doing well. 
I don't want people to be confused because you are not in the blue and blue and gold. You are in your Oregon orange because you are an assistant there uh, for Melissa Lombardo. And tell us how that is going as you try to navigate coaching and keeping your team together during this time. Yeah, we're doing pretty good. Um, we're reaching out as much as possible. Um, it, it's new for everyone. And so we are uh, FaceTiming. We are the NCAA just kind of came out with some new legislation yesterday. Um, so we're able to do four hours of team building kind of instruction, but um, we're, we're still connected with our team by quite a bit. So we actually have a Zoom meeting um, tomorrow. So um, it's just something weekly that we want to do. That way we can actually see them and ask them how school's going, how they're doing. And so, but yeah, we're, we're doing everything we can at the moment. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Well, let's get to you because this is a huge anniversary, the 10 year anniversary of your women's college world series win over UCLA. And I just wanted to ask you, there's so many superlatives. I've, I've got to read off some of these superlatives because as I was reading them, Beth Mullins helped me with these and I could not believe you hit 706 in the women's college world series, the second best batting average of all time. How, how do you describe that feeling of being in a zone like that at the biggest moment of your life? Yeah, uh, good question. Um, I have no idea. But no, actually, um, I know I, there's times where everything slows down. Um, and I got to work with a, an amazing sports psychologist named Ken Revisa. He's no longer here with us. But he would always, um, I wouldn't say harp, but his big thing that he would always really preach to us is be present, be here. And so uh, I remember doing my best of trying to be in the moment. And I was fortunate that it just kind of all worked out and the ball looked like a watermelon and it, it found holes um, at important times, which I was fortunate with. My teammates were awesome through that whole process. Um, Dr. Revisa, he, he was kind of a legendary sports psychologist in both baseball and softball. I know he passed away, but I got a t chance to meet him at the World Series, and he was wonderful. Yeah. He was one that was also very famous for having the little tiny toilet in the dugout. Yeah. You yeah. know, like, flush it. Like, move on to the next thing. That can't help you in the past. Move on to the next thing. Yeah, absolutely. So I love that he was instrumental for you. Okay. You also, second best batting average ever. Um, best slugging percentage in women's college world series history, 1.529. Um, just, just ex exorbitant four home runs, eight runs, the best total ever in the women's college world series. Like as you're teaching your new athletes and your new players, do you ever, I, I know your personality, you probably won't brag on yourself, but are you ever like, Hey, when I was at the world series, here's what I was able to do. And here's how I could do it. Like, how do you use your success? I try and use it as previous experiences. So my players give me a hard time of because uh, I don't brag about myself um, hardly at all. So they like to do the bragging for me. Um, but I try and teach them things that works for me that I'm hoping that will work for them. So, for example, the be present, be here. And I feel like that translates not just to hitting, but also to pitching and to fielding in every aspect of the game of you have to be present in the moment, pitch to pitch, and you can't worry about the previous pitch before or the next pitch after. So um, I might not take the actual numbers and say I hit home runs and did all that, but I try and use those experiences 
to really teach our players on how to hopefully go up to the next level. If you ever need a hype man and you need me to come in there and be like, listen, here's why you need to listen to her because she did X, Y, Z. You just call me because I will be your hype man every day. Thank 3-0, you. 3-0 as a pitcher, and you really had a famous screwball. It's very curious. I feel like we always said you only had a screwball. How many pitches were you working with and using to get that great record at the World Series and win a championship? Yeah, no, I, it was really only about two, three pitches. Um, it was a screwball which was honestly just a running fastball. Um, I was able to kind of manipulate my hand to get the ball to kind of go wherever I wanted, moving, if you're looking at home plate, moving left to right. And so um, whether I wanted it to kind of come up and in a little bit or down and in um, or just move side to side. And so I would locate that on the inner half to righties. Um, And then just as a surprise factor, I would move it all the way over and throw it outside the righties just to keep them honest. And then I had a change up. So I, I always tell pitchers, I didn't have one pitch by choice. I tried other pitches. They just weren't very good. Um, they weren't competitive enough to, to succeed at the next level until I found this one pitch and was able to kind of master and perfect it. But that's the beauty is you did master the location. So you had absolute control and location yeah. of your yeah. one pitch. Yeah, there's. Um, I learned this from um, Beth Terena at LSU, and you, the three S's is spot, spin, and speed. And usually if you have one, you'll be okay. You might not be an All-American or anything like that, but if you have one, you'll be successful. If you have two, you'll have pretty good success um, in hoping to get to that next level of a Women's College World Series or a championship. But if you have three, you're kind of like a unicorn. <laughs> you're kind of like the 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 special um, thing that everybody's trying to achieve. And there's not too many that have the three. I could think of probably Monica Abbott, um, Kat Osterman. They're like the one percenters that only have this. Yeah. I love that. Wow. Awesome. We'll get, we'll get Beth on to talk more about that. I love that. I love that yeah. adage. Okay. So, um the thing that I remember, I, I was there obviously covering your yep. games, and I remember two things very distinctly. One is that screwball really ripped up your finger. And yes. tell me what you had to do because your finger was pulling away from your fingernail where it would rip on the seam. Yeah. Tell me what you had to do to win that game. So that game, I ended up having to use super glue. Um, and most pitchers have done this in the past, um, but they end up super gluing their fingers. Um, and it's basically you're trying to close the gap between the the tear and uh, the other side of the tear. So, yeah, I ended up super gluing, trying to think, I ended up super gluing this middle finger and then just basically trying to shut it close. And super glue is going to stay only for so long, so you just reapply and reapply. So, yeah. And then at the hotel, I would sometimes uh, put my finger in pickle juice. That's an old baseball um, remedy. Um, the pickle juice has obviously a lot of salt, and it dries out the the wound. So um, you soak it in pickle juice, and then you super glue it the next morning. So tough. Did, did you throw every pitch for UCLA in that World Series, or did you have oh. any help? I, I, no, I, I remember. Tons of help. I had tons and tons of help. Um, I, I believe, oh, shoot. Aaliyah Macon, I think, started against Florida, our very first You're right. And then I yep. came in, and then um, 
Aliyah came in and finished uh, game one of the championship series and Donna Kerr threw our last out of game two. So we definitely were a, a nice, complete staff. It was definitely not a one-person show. Okay, beautiful. And then just to, to cap this off with really one of my greatest memories is um, in game one of the championship series, the best two out of three, you had a really rough seventh inning, if you remember. Do you remember what happened in game one? Yeah. I wonder if it's seared into your brain. What Do you no, remember what it was- so I remember it, and that's I, I try and tell athletes, like, you talk about being present. I didn't just give up the game-tying home run. I also gave up the game-winning home run in the seventh. So I went from, oh, my gosh, we just need three outs. Like, And pitchers, by the way, never count down the outs. Never, 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 never count down the outs. You play it out and pitch by pitch at a time. So – there's the little tidbit for today. Never count down the outs. Um, so I gave up back-to-back home runs and then got pulled, and I needed to get pulled. I probably didn't see that in the moment, but now looking back as a coach, oh, my gosh, get me the hell out of there. Like, she's not she's not in it. Like, get, she needs help. So I get pulled. I get put at first base, and I remember clearly thinking about the post-game press conference and thinking to myself, someone's going to ask me, so what does it feel like to give up back-to-back home runs? And, like, idiot, what are you thinking about? You're in a game. Like, and it's, it's done. So I remember clearly we get the last out. Thank God Aaliyah Macon showed up, balled out, yeah. uh, pitched. Oh, sorry. Yes, start, start that little part again because you're think you're you froze up. So so you get the outs. You guys goes to extra innings. Your team yes. gets you out of that thing. And um, game time hit happens. And yep. then what happens when you step up to the plate? So I ended up um, we we get the last out of that half inning. And I remember also clear as day, Monica Harrison, our shortstop, and Gianna DeSalvatore, our second baseman, who are pretty two awesome leaders. Um, I would say they're, they were kind of the rocks along with Julie Bernie, the rocks of our infield for sure, but the rocks of our team. And so they come into the dugout and I'm like totally in my feelings, like, like just not doing well. And they look at me clear in my eyes and say, Lang, we're going to win this, right? Like we're, we're going to win this. And I'm like, well, if they think we can win this then I guess we can. And so it, I ended up coming up to bat that inning. Um, and you talk about things being in slow motion and it looked like the ball was floating. Um, and so uh, just tried to put a good swing on it and it ended up going out. So it was, it was awesome. But I remember all the stuff leading up to it was uh, insane. It was an awesome, awesome team moment. Right, the adversity, giving up the back-to-back home runs, yeah. um, and then coming up and having a chance to win the game for yourself. I've always loved that story. Okay, it seems so hard to believe that it's ten years ago. As you're talking about this, it, I, it just takes me right back to that moment mm-hmm. and thinking, "Oh my gosh, she just won it after she lost it." You know, like right. the, the back and forth. 
It, it was just crazy. All right. We have a big bracket being revealed uh, today on our Seven Innings podcast awesome. about pitchers who rake. And um, I will not reveal what seed you are, but I think the I, numbers speak for themselves as we talk about some of your career numbers, especially at the Women's College World Series. How important was it for you as a pitcher to continue to have a voice at the plate, you know, some a, a way to redeem yourself? Yeah, totally. Um, I would say it was, for me, extremely important. If I couldn't perform or if I couldn't contribute in the circle, then at least I can try and do something at bat or vice versa. So maybe I was struggling at the plate that day. Well, at least I can try and contribute to my team and help in the pitching circle. So for me, it was um, a little bit more of like a relief. Um, So I didn't have all my eggs in one basket. So, and I think pitchers or pitch only um, pitchers sometimes have that, I don't want to say added pressure, but that's the only place they get to um, contribute to their team. And so I think that sometimes they put a little bit more extra stress and pressure on themselves when that happens. Beautiful. Well, we are all four pitchers who rake. Thank you for joining us. Congratulations again, as we revisit some of these memories of 10 years ago, it just stills in my mind. What a you and one of the most mentally strong players and athletes I have ever covered. Thank, Thank you, you, Megan. Thank you, Holly. I appreciate it. All right. Good luck with everything in Oregon and keep that team together. We can't wait to see them Thank back you. out on the field next year. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And go Ducks. Thank you. It just is so hard to believe that was 10 years ago. It felt like yesterday when she started talking about some of those memories. And I really love that she gave a shout out to Dr. Ken Revisa, who was such a major impact in sports psychology, both in baseball and in softball. And I know he impacted many of you athletes, but I loved her advice of staying present in that moment. And I think that's great advice that will help all of us in our current situation in the world. Most definitely, Holly. And and speaking of another legend, Coach John Wooden actually passed away during that championship series, June 4th of 2010. And when you look at the championships of UCLA holistically, you see very dominant teams. And in 2010, that wasn't the case. They had seven losses in the Pac-12 conference. And they went into the World Series as an underdog. Their first game was against Florida. And if we rewind back to 2008, Florida knocked them out of the of the World Series. So putting 16 runs on the board and just, I mean, the hitting, the spectacular from Slam and Sandy, Gianna DeSalvatore, Andrea Harrison. And I know Megan Langenfeld gets a ton of the credit for her heroics in game one. But it was a complete team effort that really catapulted them to be the 2010 national champions. Well, and what would this conversation be without a little bit of Arizona love? Sorry, Jen, I'm going to have to just go there. But for Arizona to lose in the beginning and have to come all the way through the loser's bracket, they were facing an opponent that was tired, let's be honest. But it was in the regular season that it was a back-and-forth fight between the two of them. And so – kudos to UCLA, an amazing performance. But the thing that stood out to me was the home runs that were coming at such pivotal moments throughout the championship series. Megan Langenfeld, you're right, does get a ton of credit for that walk-off win. But there were so many long balls. That was the important piece for me as I was watching that championship series. Just you never knew who was going to hit the next one. That's that's exactly it, Jenny. I mean, when I remember being in the booth and just like looking at Smitty and looking at Beth and being like, are you freaking kidding me right now? Like, what is happening? Like, and we've seen it now in so many World Series, 
especially in the 17-inning game, we just got to see the recap of that. We were just jaw-dropping ties, then come back to win it, to take it over, extra innings. But that moment, I felt like, just blew up as far as knowing that a game is truly not over and that the heroes within the game. And I know Langenfeld, that's why she gets so much of the credit. There was such a team to get to that point. But, oh, my gosh, was that home run one of the most magical moments in World Series history. And and I know you remember, Jess, this is Audi, Audi folklore uh, right now, but that was it. Remember the dropped fly yes. ball? And the misplayed yes. fly ball should have been the game out in yes. left center field. Left center field. That like Arizona did corn, not get too. to. It's the curse of Arizona left fielders, Jenny. It's a curse. It's happened. Look at the history of Arizona. They have lost games because of that three times. It's true. And when I actually, I reached out to Kenzie Fowler, who was pitching, and she said, you know, in that moment, we all just the wind came out of our sails, knowing that that was the moment that the game could over, and then they have to go to extras, and they were exhausted already. She said that was a really pivotal moment for them, and they really didn't rebound. Yeah, and to follow up on, on that, Jenny, they were exhausted because they had to beat Tennessee twice in the semifinals to make it into the championship game. They do that. They yeah. also overcome. You have to give a big kudos to Kenzie Fowler because, remember, at the beginning of the tournament, she had all those illegal pitches called on her. Yes. She didn't have hardly any all year, and then she shows up in Oklahoma City, and all of a sudden there's all these illegal pitches. In fact, she had 16 of the 22 that were called in the first bit, the first eight games of that Women's College World Series. Another little bit of um, information, this was the year of the home run, and they actually backed up the, the fences. Do you remember that? They used to yeah. be at 190. They backed them up to 200, and they put them up to six feet. They used to be four foot, right, where the, the outfielders could really go over and grab those. The, when the Caitlin ball, Lowe would go on. over yes. that. Yes. Remember mm. her going over the fence? Over the fence. But it was it was amazing how many home runs were blasted out, even with all those changes. But it definitely was a hard year to be in the circle for pitchers um, trying to keep that pivot foot down. So a lot of great memories of that 2010 championship. That was a wild World Series, by the way. It, the, the nine seed Missouri was there. The sixteen seed Hawaii was there. Remember that was the year they oh Alabama. bro bro sorry oh, sorry they bro, went into oh. the Rhodes House and won. Arizona was a ten seed, got into the finals. Tennessee was there that year as a 15 seed. Opening day, the underdogs went 4-0. and The lower-seeded teams all won on opening day. That was a crazy Women's College World Series 10 years ago and a fitting way to cap it off with UCLA just dropping bombs all over the place, knocking out home runs left and right, led by uh, Megan Langenfeld and slamming Sammy Camuso. Uh, we've got a lot more to come on the program, including Scarborough. She's got a strike zone on her wall, folks. She's got the drill of the day for us. We're going to shag some stats with pitchers who rake and also hear from Sid Sherrill. But first, Andrea Harrison wants to tell us about that grand salami in the 2010 Champ Series. Hey, everybody. This is Andrea Gasso, formerly known as Andrea Harrison. And my favorite moment from the 2010 National Championship game has to be the Grand Flam. I've been preparing for that moment for a really long time. Everybody had been walking Lang, and I'm just happy that it happened and I was able to step up. Say bye. Bye. Welcome back to the Seven Innings Podcast. Great stuff there on the 10-year anniversary of that national championship for UCLA. 
Florida State, of course, won a natty a couple of years ago with Sydney Sherrill, one of the young stars of that team. And this week, she had a chance to sit down with Amanda Scarborough. Okay, so season ended and you went back to Oklahoma. What have you been doing? Um, I definitely, you know, it's kind of been like a whirlwind of emotions when it ended. Um, being in Tallahassee when it ended was like the day that we like found out that, you know, they were canceling all. It was like the most emotional day probably of my life and all the emotions seen from the seniors and stuff. And so just kind of getting over that, I feel like I've kind of just wanted a break almost. Like it was just so much. And I don't know, I feel like I try to see the positive side of things. So I've been trying to see it as like this break has been, you know, a blessing in disguise. And so you know, coming home, I've gone to spend a lot of time with my family that, you know, I usually don't get to spend with them. So um, I've been doing that a lot, spending a lot of time with my family. And um, my parents are just like, so thrilled to have me home and have all my siblings together at one time. So, you know, we play board games and at night and do stuff like that, which is something my family has never done. Like, we've just been go, go, go since I can even remember with sports and my parents or my dad owning his own business. So it's just crazy that such a tragedy in the world is happening. But I feel like, and I feel like a lot of people can relate to this. It's really like bringing families closer together than, you know, they ever thought, which is kind of cool, especially for my family. Cause I know we're so like disconnected year round. Um, Christmas is really the only time we get to spend together. So it's really cool that we get to be here together, but um, on the softball side of it, I've kind of taken a break from it. And I know I haven't even really talked to my coaches or anything, but this week is actually the start of our um, exit meetings, I guess you would call it kind of from like the end of season. And so I guess since season ended where we started that up. So um, they're using zoom and doing the video chat with each player. And then on Monday is our first like team meeting. So that's how we're kind of getting reconnected with that. But yeah, just being home. Um, it's funny because my sister actually moved back into our house here uh, in Oklahoma and um, she took my room. So my dad gave me like money to go make up my new room. And so that's what I've been doing pretty much for the past week was, you know, going to the store and ordering stuff to make my own room here to feel like at home and feel comfortable. So that's what I did. And it's just cool. Me and my sister have bonded a lot. We didn't really grow up together. So it's really cool to, you know, be building that relationship with her now, now that we're older. And so that's kind of what I've been doing, just really been involved with family, which is really cool for me because it's really never been something that it's always been sports connecting us, but now it's kind of just, you know, building relationships. What has been y'all's favorite board game to play? Um, Probably Cards Against Humanity. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and you guys are in Oklahoma. And so Tiger King is like the top of the town right now. Like what's it like to be in Oklahoma and have you seen Tiger King and what are your thoughts? <laughs> it's just so funny. I think like when, you know, we see, I've seen, I've gone to, cause they have a couple of grocery stores open and I see my friends and stuff. And that's literally what people are talking about. Cause so many on, you know, social media, I feel like social media is so big right now because that's what everybody can do is just be on social media. And that's what everybody's been talking about. So it's just like a topic right now. And it's just crazy. I honestly had no idea who he was before this. And my friend, one of my best friends here, she can remember going to his zoo when it was open. And she like remembers seeing him and stuff, which is like crazy to me. 
And I don't know, it's just crazy that kind of representing Oklahoma, it's kind of not embarrassing, but like, it's not really what all people are, are like, but it's kind of funny to just have that um, be, I guess, what Oklahoma is about. It's kind of funny to me, but very interesting still. Tiger King could be its own, like, seven-hour podcast, I think, if we want to do, like, seven innings podcast on Tiger King. Um, going back to y'all's team and Lonnie, I and mean, we just love Lonnie, and I'm sure she's so much fun to play for and be around. Like, what's something that we don't know about Coach Alameda? Um, I don't know. You, I mean, I feel like she's not – I feel like people know, everyone knows her because she's just such like, ah, oh, Kocha. Like you just know and love, everyone loves Kocha. Like I, there's not very many people out there that don't like her. She's just a great person. I think before I came to college, I had no idea how like impactful she was to so many people. Like so many people know and love her. And I don't know, when I think of Kocha too, I think of Starbucks. Like it was too, just go like, one with the other she's like in love with starbucks and she should be sponsored by starbucks she really should she her and starbucks go like together so well but yeah that's really it i feel like she's just indescribable i feel like you can't like put a finger on like what she's done for you or how she's impacted you and i don't know i think everybody that has played under her just been around her for a long period of time would like pretty much say the same things like she's just like a one-of-a-kind woman but I can't really put a finger on something that other people wouldn't know just how great she is I guess people I feel like blessed to be able to play under her I I'm just so grateful that I chose Florida State and her coaching staff because definitely would not be the person I am today without them okay so one of our big topics right now is like the greatest hitter in the history of college softball. So we talked about a ton of different hitters. And in fact, we're making it a bracket of hitters and we'll try to make it like, we'll have different seedings and try to make it through of Stacy movement. Um, I, I mean, it just goes like on and on and on. Stacy movement, I think is going to be one of our um, top seeds. Who comes to mind for you that you've looked up to or who you feel like is one of the best hitters that you've ever seen play the game? Um, definitely Jesse Warren, just because I played with her and, you know, I probably because I grew up baseball, I wasn't really into college softball growing up. And so I wasn't really around. I think just a year before I came to Florida state was the only time I really watched college softball. And so I don't even remember watching it when like Lauren Chamberlain was around, which is crazy. So I think, if I would have been watching, I think I would definitely have a few more people, but just my first one that comes to mind is Jessie Warren, just because I played with her and just the things I've seen her do is just like totally unnatural. Like it is not, you can't like teach it. You can't try to do it. Like it's just insane. I just can remember me and my dad talk about it all the time, how she would just, and it's funny. I would just the other day I watched our LSU series my freshman year with, um, the 2018 team, but, and I was just watching her at bats and she would just foul off everything. Like all the balls that would be thrown, she would just foul them off, just like tip them, barely even put her bat out there, just like foul them off and just to get her pitch. And then one would be pitched down the middle and she would hit it out. Like she was just such a talented hitter and 
Gosh, she, and it was so cool to me because she was never, she never went to the plate with like a passive mindset. Like it was like she wanted to hit the ball and she never feared anything. I don't know. I just really looked up to that as a freshman, you know, seeing that in an upperclassman was really cool and it definitely gave me confidence to do that at the plate. So she's definitely someone I look up to hitting wise. Well, Jessie's in the bracket, so I can already tell that she's for sure going to get your vote. So you better try to campaign for her whenever the brackets come out and see how far she gets. Thanks for taking some time with us. Um, Wishing you and your family and Oklahoma all the best during these tough times, but we appreciate you taking some time. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Yeah, so I loved how she talked about Jesse Warren being what she considered the greatest hitter because she didn't really have anything to compare it to. She grew up playing baseball, and she got to play with Jesse Warren, who also had a baseball background. So she really looked up to Jesse Warren there on that championship team together. Um, and also, I just liked hearing her talk about Tiger King. I, you know, I had to ask her about Tiger King. She lives in Oklahoma. How did I not do it? So it was great to catch up with her and hear what FSU and Lonnie's been up to. Oh. Tiger King, if you haven't watched it, is a, a Netflix um, special, and you don't, don't believe do it. it's real. It is Crazy. so bizarre. <laughs> about so uh, people in Florida, so with Jason State, so. I used to live yeah, that. That's a good point. Yeah. When I lived in Florida, I used to live near that Big Cat Rescue, just uh, throwing that out there. Never went, though. Never, never went, avoided that. You never um, met Gerald Baskin. No, no, He's crazy. no. <laughs> well, you referenced Jesse Warren, who is on the uh, greatest collegiate softball sluggers bracket. We will be unveiling the brackets this week on social media. At Seven Innings is our Twitter handle and on the Instagram. That's one of our discussions coming up in April. We're also going to have a discussion about pitchers who rake. We'll have another bracket on that coming up later in April. But when we talk about sluggers, the big story this year was supposed to be Jesse Harper's quest to become the home run queen in college softball history and a chance to pass Lauren Chamberlain. The NCAA has decided as of right now that the statistics in this shortened season will count. So at last, uh, t- let's see, Jesse Harper now at 76 home runs. And Jenny Dalton-Hill, she will have a chance to track down that 95th home run, which is the record, next season. And so the discussion amongst uh, the Seven Innings podcasters right now is, should the statistics count? And is it possible that in four and a half years' time, Jenny Dalton, there might be a freshman out there that could break your all-time RBI record, which still stands to this day? Well, and I was looking through the records this past week as we were talking about pitchers who rake and talking about the big hit we have in our bracket so far. And when I'm looking through those records, the thing that stands out is pretty regularly the game numbers are similar. So there may be a 15-game disparity between records, but when you add in an additional 26 games to records, when right now you've got some home run chases going on, there could be RBI chases because of this, it's going to rewrite record books with an additional 26 games. So there has to be some way to delegate that that's what happened. There's got to be an asterisk next to those records, but I think the way that I would want it handled is just making sure that, I I don't know, I have a hard time giving 
a gift of 26 games to these athletes and then allowing them to rewrite the record book. I would much rather have it be a situation where if you're coming back and playing all year, that those numbers from this year don't count. We talked last week um, about um, Alex Martins at UK, who's off to an amazing start with RBIs and batting average, and she's not going to be able to come back next year. So I think those numbers for her should count. But when you talk about Jesse Harper, who's chasing a home run record but from Lauren Chamberlain, I think it's a situation for her where these home runs from this year shouldn't count. She should go back. If she gets a do-over year, then her stats should be do-over as well. Jess, what do you think? There, There's no championship. There's no awards. There, This, as sad as it is and as sad as it makes us, 2020 is not a softball season. They did play 26 games. They played those games, and that was a gift. I just do not feel like the stats should count. And in my opinion, Jesse Harper, 10 home runs. I think that's amazing. It's not fair. I would have loved to have had 26 more games to add to our stats. She gets those games. She has those memories. That team, every player that got to play has that opportunity, but they get another year. These stats can't count because it's an advantage, and it's not fair, especially to me, the biggest record. In our entire game, the most exciting is that home run record. And Jesse Harper will break it. And to me, not only an asterisk should be there, it just isn't fair she should do it in four years. And she, she still could. Okay, I could not disagree more strongly, or I couldn't agree, disagree more strongly, however you're supposed to say that. <laughs> I, I am kind of furious with this reasoning. You know what's not fair? putting in all the time and work that these athletes did and having their season cut short in this unprecedented global crisis. That's not fair. And not having a World Series to play in, that's not fair. And so I I don't think that we should be worried about ancient records. Of course there will be asterisks. Of course we will all understand that they got extra games. But they played these games. The work was done. Even though the season was short, these were real games, sanctioned games, and these stats absolutely have to count. What's not fair is what happened to these student athletes this year. Yeah, I I 100% agree with you, Holly. Like, I think that, I mean, no offense, I appreciate all the records that everybody puts in, but that's a small, like, dip in the ocean compared to what's going on globally, globally right now. And especially when, you know, like the challenge of trying to have to sit out a year and it's like coming back from injury. It's a, it's a long road. It's a tough road ahead to try and rebuild the season. And I understand that, you know, you get 26 games, but I was actually looking at it and it's kind of crazy because, um, so right now, like somebody like Jesse Harper is at 207 games. Uh, Jenny, you played 251 games. Jess, you played 259. Uh, I played 252. Uh, Lauren Chamberlain, who actually holds the record, only played 220. Yeah. So she's already at a disadvantage because she had, well, she was injured for like 30 games in her junior season. So I think that you can throw all this stuff in, but the reality is like Chamberlain got hurt. Things happen to different people that are out of your control. So, I mean, the stats are going to stay what they are. I mean, like you said, Holly, they played those games. Yeah, I agree with you, uh, Kayla. And I think that the other thing to remember is that home runs, it really is dependent on number of at-bats as well as number of games. The other thing I find interesting when you really look at both of their statistics is the number of walks that Lauren Chamberlain had in her career. 207 times she was walked. If you look at Jesse Harper, she's only walked 51 times in her career. So she swings it. She is not going up there uh, looking 
to, to, to walk to first base. She's looking, especially in the Arizona air, to put that ball out of the park. And I'm sure Kendrea says, swing it. You got it, the ability to swing it. So Some you, could be unintentional intentionals. And you look at bats, number of bat bats for home run, is that Chamberlain hit a home run every basically six at-bats or 6.4 at-bats, and J.C. Harper is 8.8 at-bats. So I think that even if Harper breaks it, you could still look at Chamberlain as probably the most efficient home run hitter ever. Yeah. Well, and, and one last thing, if they if they got hurt, 20 games, or I, I'm unsure, I think that the red shirt percentage is 20%, those, those stats would still count. So it's technically just a few more games that they're playing if they tore their ACL or hurt their shoulder, and they had played deep in like all of February and a little bit into March, mm-hmm. like it's not that many more games and the stats should still count. They were done with almost 50% of their games. I'm on Team Jess here. My mom told me growing up, life is not fair, Jennifer. So, I, Jess, I am on Team Jess. 20% is very different than almost 50% of a season, in my opinion. Sorry, had to jump in. These are strange bedfellows we're creating here. Uh, Lauren Chamberlain, as you mentioned, Smitty, 6.3 at-bats with a home run. You know who was second best? Sierra Romero, 7.1 at-bats. Third best, Stacey Newman. 7.6 at-bats. Here's the other thing that I, th- I think is part of this debate is there are things that can happen on the field, uh, whether or not you're walked a lot, whether or not you get hurt. There are other extenuating circumstances as well. Remember, Stacey Newman. Who's in Newman, front of you in the lineup and behind yes. you in the lineup. Yeah. Well, well, no, not not only that, but remember, Stacey Newman redshirted the year that UCLA was ineligible for the NCAA tournament, also took a year off to play with the Olympic, Olympic. team. So she was at UCLA six years. She was a little older by the time she finished her career, perhaps more wiser and experienced at the plate. You have other players that go on two-year missions. They're older when they're in the batting cage, or they're facing older pitchers. So there are all kinds of fun, extenuating circumstances to consider here. Uh, I'm, I'm on the fence because Harper will have a chance to break the record next year. But what if coaches or other pitchers decide – what if they're on Team Jess and Team Jen and they decide, you know what? We're not going to throw to her. We're going to walk her so she can't break the record. We're going to hit her. Stuff. Yeah, we're going to throw right at her. And there, there, could also be a, there could also be a freshman right now that gets the benefit of these extra games that we don't know in four yeah. and a half years' time will then break Jesse Harper's record because they got the extra games. Yeah, it's, it's not a – We'll agree on the asterisks, but I, I, I just don't think 2020 is a season. And I know the players, I, I get it. Trust me. Like my heart, I feel for them. I just don't think when you look at overall numbers, like we can give them all the credit in the world for everything else that they've done and the athletes that they're going to continue to be. But this season, unfortunately, it's, it's not a real season. It just isn't. Just, I, but as, as we go to break here, we're going to uh, investigate, uh, let's see, uh, Amanda Scarborough's strike zone coming up, and we're also going to shag some stats. We'll head to break with this. Does Jenny Dalton Hill know what current player may be the biggest threat in Ooh. her career RBI record that still stands, what, 20, oh gosh, 25 years later? JD? You don't need to add the oh gosh in there. Come on. <laughs> um, I'm going to say it might be a Bruin. Okay. All right. A young Bruin? A young okay. Bruin who's going right. to have the benefit of additional 26 games. <laughs> we'll keep her eye, keep her eyes out. What's it? Watching. Three, is it three twenty six, three sixty eight? What's your number? Uh, three twenty eight, I believe. Three twenty. There you go. I remember. Off Not that I looked it up this morning or anything. <laughs> <laughs> I looked up all the threats. 
Oh, hey, you always have to know who the enemy is. Just saying. Oh, records are meant to be broken. Just saying. Oh, <laughs> but that's right. what makes our game so fun. All of the records go. and all of the chase. Let it go. <laughs> Let the record go out the door. Let it go. Sing us to break, Holly. Sing us to break. <laughs> Let it go. We'll be back when the show continues after this. <laughs> Pitchers, you guys can create your own strike zone at home with some electrical tape. So to know where to put the strike zone, first of all, home plate is 17 inches wide. So that part's easy. Go 17 inches across from inside to outside. Then the top of the strike zone is going to be at the bottom of your sternum. The bottom of the strike zone is going to be at the top of your knee. Whenever you're practicing, you don't just have to use a ball, you can roll up some socks. I have six ankle socks all rolled up together so you can pitch into the wall and not hurt a ball and not hurt a wall. Whenever you're throwing into the strike zone, this is a strike, the top of the ball has to be at the bottom of the sternum, and then this is also a strike, the top of the ball at the bottom of the knees. Have fun. So I thought it was just really important for pitchers to still be able to find a way to have a consistent release point, focus in on a strike zone. And I think to Michelle, like knowing truly by the rule book, what's a strike and what's a ball at the top and the bottom of the strike zone. Yeah. Especially in these times, Amanda, where you may not have a catcher obviously to throw to and you might think, Oh, I'm just going to throw into a net by visually being able to see the strike zone, your brain body awareness helps you with your release, being able to hit your targets. And it's fun. You can challenge yourself to hit all four corners. There's a lot of different things you can do to stay motivated, to stay involved and to, to really continue to grow your game. So I think that's important. Yeah. You could even make a smaller strike zone with the tighter umpire or make a bigger strike zone. Just another play off of that too. Um, Cause no umpire is exactly the same. Let's face it. <laughs> <laughs> and as Megan Langenfeld told us during her interview, her command of her spots is, is being able to run that screwball at any spot she wanted on any side of the plate. That That's how you become an elite pitcher, so maintaining those spots. Okay, great ideas, great segments. I, I know there's going to be some dents <laughs> in walls at home, and we apologize. Don't charge us for those. But coming up next, everybody's favorite segment. I'm kind of playing around with different ways to lead us into it. This week, it's going to be a British coming up next. Shagging stuff. Welcome back to this week's Shagging Stats. We are so excited <laughs> to hear that the Olympics will be one year away. They've been postponed to July 23rd. 2020. So Holly Rose shagging stat today, 478. That is how many days until the 2020 Olympics in 2021. Well, speaking <laughs> of Olympic games, Holly Rowe, my shagging stat is on a hitting pitcher to me, the best hitting pitcher of all time. I was a teammate of hers in 2004 Olympic games. By the way, she holds the Olympic record for batting average 545 she hit in Athens people 545 at the Olympics and she also holds a record for ERA point point one two she was a beast she's now inducted in the Hall of Fame because of that the Olympic Hall of Fame that's my shag and stat Jenny what do you got 
Okay, so Jess, I'm going to play off of that because not only was she amazing in the Olympics, but Lisa Fernandez in 1993 led the country in batting average collegiately, hitting 5.10, and also led the country with the lowest ERA at .25. So an amazing pitcher around the world, but also collegiately. But let me point out one of our very own who led the country collegiately. Back in 1989, Michelle Smith led the country with strikeouts per seven innings. She had 8.56 strikeouts per seven innings. Smitty, pretty amazing. Kudos to you. You know what that means? No free passes. She hates those effing free passes. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Speaking of other... uh... Pictures at Rake. I'm going to go back to 2010 and Megan Langenfeld in her Women's College World Series. She had uh, 12 hits, so she was 12 for 17, a 705 batting average in the Women's College World Series. Four home runs with so 33% of her hits in that Women's College World Series were home runs. Langenfeld getting it done in the circle and with the bat. What do you say, Amanda? Well, I have a name that not a lot of people talk about very often, but from a and my alma mater, Mel Dumasich, she was a three-time All-American, just over a 2.0 career ERA, hit almost 50 career home runs, and hit almost 150 RBIs. So a three-time All-American that hardly anybody ever talks about. So gig em. Kayla? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going to go back to my alma mater as well and uh, give some credit to one of the Alabama greats and my former coach, Stephanie Van Brakel. She finished her career with a sub 1.6 ERA, 40 home runs, but she gets a ton of credit and uh, goes down in history at Alabama for her senior year, beating Monarch Abbott twice. And not only should beat her in the circle twice, hit a home run in game three to secure the three game sweep over Tennessee. Okay, but Steph is an amazing player. So I'll keep on trend with talking about our alma maters. It's not Lisa Fernandez because Beth Moans told me I'm not allowed to. We can't give her enough credit. <laughs> but I'll take it to somebody who maybe people don't know a lot about, Courtney Dale. In 1999, one of the most dominant pitchers, only lost one game that year, was 33-1 and with a .98 ERA. People who do remember her remember her for her pitching, but she actually sits in the top 20 on five different UCLA offensive record books. Pretty impressive. Courtney Dale. Love it. We're we're talking about pitchers who rake because that – okay, so we got the sluggers bracket, the greatest collegiate slugger of all time. Those brackets will be coming out on social media this week. Our next bracket will be pitchers who rake. That will be coming up later in the great month of April. So that's why we're talking about all these great pitchers who also hit. Will Courtney Dale make the bracket? I can tell you right now, Courtney's on the bubble. She might get in to the bracket. Is Dumasich at Texas A&M a better raking pitcher than Gibson or Scarborough? Who's going to get a higher seed from that bunch? How many is, is Lauren Hager in? That's all I Lauren Hager is in. Lauren Hager is in 7070 club. Lauren Hager is in. How, how many Bruins, how many Arizona hitting pitchers will be on the bracket? That's all going to be fun stuff that'll be coming out. Um, I can tell you one player who will be in the bracket, maybe the greatest in Big Ten history. You know, I share a birthday with, um, coach Carol Hutchins, May 26th. The year is irrelevant. So I'm going to go to Ann Arbor, and I'm going to throw out Sarah Griffin for my shag and stats. When she graduated in 1998, she was number one in wins, strikeouts, and shutouts. 
And she was number one in hits, batting average, RBI, and slugging percentage. I don't know if that's going to make Sarah Griffin, you know, one of the one of the top four seeds in the tournament, uh, a one, a two, a three, a four, a five. I mean, we're going to have a whole nother raking pitchers bracket. It's going to be a lot of fun. I, I think yes. Smitty, I think Smitty, you're going to be on that one too, probably. Yes, she <laughs> will. Yeah. If she's not, we're all protesting. Yes. <laughs> all right. Your homework, boys and girls, is to try and figure out where in the heck in England Holly got that British accent from. Possibly <laughs> shagging stats. We don't know where that was from, but that's your homework assignment. <laughs> hey, thanks to, yes, thanks to Megan Langenfeld uh, for joining us. Thanks to Sydney Sherrill. Uh, we're probably going to uh, have some other fun people to chat with on the next Seven Innings podcast. Oh, gosh, who's here? Beth Mullins, Michelle Smith, Holly Rowe, Jessica Mendoza, Amanda Scarborough, Jen Schroeder, Jenny Dalton-Hill, Caleb Bro, J-Mac Buzz, a cast of thousands behind the scenes. Thanks for all of their hard work. We hope we're able to uh, put a smile on your face, at least for a little bit, during these trying times. And uh, I hope you have as much fun making strange bedfellows in your debate about whether or not the stats should count <laughs> this year. See you next time. Cheerio.